Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to do verses 1 through 11. Our topic will be lawsuits with unbelievers. Our context is this. Paul is in the midst of his chastisement of the Corinthian church in chapter 5. He dealt with their lack of church discipline, how they were not taking care of a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. They didn't do church discipline. They weren't handling a case that needed to be handled inside the church. And now he's going to be talking about disputes against one another in the church that were being handled in the pagan court. So we start with 1 Corinthians 6, 1. Paul says this to the Corinthians, If any of you has a legal dispute against one another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, a legal dispute, it has to be a case of a civil nature, a contract dispute of some sort. The state, of course, handles criminal cases, so this is not a case of rape or, ro- or uh, robbery or murder or anything like that. And plus, Paul says in verse 7, wouldn't you rather be cheated and give up your case? That cheated, that sounds like civil stuff. Now, the Romans allowed the Jews to apply their own law to property matters, as the NIV Study Bible and of course says. And of course, the Christians were looked at as Jews by the Romans, so that means that it would have been perfectly legal perfectly okay for Christians to decide their own disputes against one another to be fine and dandy with the Romans. Now, the Jews handled their own lawsuits against one another, and in fact, as John Gill points out, the Jews saw going to a pagan court outside the Jewish faith, they saw that as profaning the name of God and a greater sin than murder. Ooh, they were pretty serious about it. Well, what, why did Paul not want the Corinthians to take their cases to the pagan courts. Well, first of all, it would expose Christian faults and weaknesses to Jesus' enemies, and that would be bad. Another problem is is that they might not expect justice from heathen magistrates. Now, I think that, of course, heathen magistrates had corruption, but so do a lot of courts. There's corruption in America, for that matter. I was in Winjo Kane University, and there was a professor there who used to be a lawyer, and he was, I think he was assistant prosecutor, and I don't remember the story, but he got out of it because the situation was in a Midwestern state was so corrupt. I said, that is just disgraceful. He said, that's right. And he said, that's why I'm gone. I had another meal with a guy that was trying to get his Ph.D. in law from the college I used to, the university I used to teach at in Shanghai. And then he was Shanghai's number one attorney. And I said, why are you getting out of the practice of law to go into academia? And he said, because all you do when you practice law in Shanghai is you take the judge out and promise him money gifts, bribes. There's corruption everywhere. So I'm not sure that the heathen courts would be any more corrupt than any anywhere else. However, you would think that Christians would be just a little bit more fair, a little bit more just when they, if the Christians would decide, if the Corinthians would decide their own cases. Here's what John Gill, Gill says about these heathen magistrates. They neither feared God nor regarded men. They were not only destitute of righteousness, but filled with all unrighteousness and had not so much as the principles of common justice and equity in them. He's referring to how Paul calls them the unrighteous. I thought that when Paul says you do not dare to go to court before the unrighteous, he could be referring to unbelievers, not necessarily crooked judges, but just unbelieving judges. So I'm not sure what Paul meant by that, but Gill seems to think they were all crooks, but Hey, on Second Corinthians, in Second Corinthians, and excuse me, in Acts 18, on the second journey, when Paul went through Corinth and was having a, a lot of trouble with the persecuting Jews, he got justice at the hands of Gallio. And how about when he was in Caesarea, when he appealed to Rome? They were, they gave him justice. The Roman courts did. 
In fact, the Roman courts kept the Jews from killing Paul when he was in Jerusalem at the end of his third journey. So I'm not sure the civil magistrates were all that bad. Well, Gill says, well, at any Gill says that Christians, excuse me, Gill says that at any rate they could expect more justice from their Christian brothers than the heathen. Even though, if, even if they weren't corrupt, they should should be able to expect more justice from Christians. I think that makes sense. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, quote, Christians, as regarding God as the only fountain of justice, should not expect justice from them, from the pagan magistrates. And Clark, referring to the fact that Paul called the heathen civil magistrates unrighteous, says this, quote, The heathen judges were termed the decosti from their presumed righteousness in the administration of justice. Here the apostle calls them adikoi, unrighteous persons, and it is very likely that at Corinth, where such corruption of manners reigned, there was a great perversion of public justice, and it is not to be supposed that matters relative to the Christians were fairly decided. So it seems to be the consensus of all my commentators that the pagan courts were corrupt and not worth going to. Maybe so, but I think the real reason is, is Paul didn't want the world to laugh at Christians and say, oh, see how they love one another. They're suing each other all the time in the courts. Now, let's take up an application problem. How many times have you heard to say it's wrong for a Christian to go to court with another Christian? I've heard it many times. I used to think that. But let's think about this. I'm an ex-lawyer, so I think about these things. Is this a blanket prohibition against any Christian going against another Christian in a pagan court? A blanket prohibition? Never do it? How about this? What happens if a Christian in North Carolina has a dispute with a Christian in Oregon? Which church are you going to take it to? Which church is going to handle the dispute? Now, in the Corinthian case, there was only one church because all the disputants were all members of one church. And so Paul's telling them, hey, you're in the church at Corinth. Get together and work it out. But you can't do that. What if, the, what if it's an international case between somebody in Russia and somebody in America? What church is going to handle that? You have to go to a pagan law court then. And if you decide, uh, well, in the case of the Christian in North Carolina and the Christian in Oregon, well, we'll do it in Oregon. Well, what, and there are going to be questions of bias there. The people, in the, the disputant in North Carolina is going to say, well, the, the, the venue is biased. Not only that, what happens if the, the contract is complicated or the dispute is complicated legally? Is the average Christian church going to have the legal expertise, for example, to handle a case of patent law? I don't think so. But... In Paul's case, he was talking about small cases, magistrates on the drink box cases. I remember when I, one time I got into this. Well, actually, it wasn't me. It was a somebody I hooked up with at the beach. I was an idiot, and the guy was, did something. I forgot what. Speeding, probably. And he got caught before a magistrate, and he called me up. This guy said he wanted me to be a witness. So I go down. It was in a old grocery store, and it was a drink box. And we sat on the drink box, and this old grizzled guy with his beard he was the legal magistrate and he imposed his justice that's the sort of thing that the corinthian church was dealing with and sure they're able to handle that but you don't go out and just sue over every little small thing so i think we need to be just a little bit nuanced when we interpret this verse now paul says do you dare to go before pagan magistrates that sounds like they've already done it do you dare go to court or it could mean are you thinking about going to court do you dare do it i think they were actually doing it we go to verse 2, 1 Corinthians 6. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Well, how are the saints going to judge the world? Well, we're going to look at some scriptures and we're going to see this is a little bit controverted. For Mainly because what is the world? Does it mean the saints are going to judge all the people in the kingdom of God, all believers? Or does it mean the world including all unbelievers? Well, let's look at scriptures that 
support the idea that we're going to judge the world with Christ. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, I assure you in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I don't think that means the end of the world, because it's talking about the Messianic age. That would be started when, of course, Jesus in, Jesus, in the New Covenant, in the New Covenant times, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, he's ascended into heaven. He sits on his throne now during the church age. You who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel stands for the church, just as in Hebrews, you know, when the old, old Israel turns over to the new Israel. And, Paul, and Jesus is still speaking in old Israel terms, but he's talking about the church. So he says, you apostles are going to be ruling over the church. The church is not the world. Now, you could say, well, but it's at the end of the world when the whole world will be the church. The non-believers won't be there anymore. Could be, but I don't think so. I think he was talking about during the New Covenant age, the apostles were going to be ruling over Israel. Now, Adam Clark says this, Dr. Lightfoot contends that the words refer to the coming of our Lord to execute judgment on the Jews and to destroy their state. In other words, AD 70. And I think that's what I, I agree with Lightfoot and I believe with Clark there. So... If that's true, then the verse does not refer to the church judging the world, and so that verse would not be good to use to talk about Christians are going to judge the world. 1 Timothy 2.12 is another verse used to try to justify that proposition that the saints will judge the world with Christ. If we endure, Paul tells Timothy, we will also reign with him. And reign means to rule or to judge. Well, but yeah, but the problem with that is that could be during this age too, during the new covenant age, we'll rule and so, but of course, maybe possible what Paul meant when he says the saints will judge the world. They're going to rule the, the, the kingdom of God now, not the world at the end of the world. Revelation 24, again, another verse used to, to support the proposition that saints will judge the world with Jesus. Then I saw thrones, John the apostle says, and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. It's authority to rule. And so these they to skip down, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. Well, if you're not a pre-mill, if you're a mill or a post-mill, I'm post-mill, well, then you know that the, the thousand years is, is a symbol for the church age. It's always talking about ruling during the church age. People seated on them who were given authority to judge in the church age, which goes along with the idea of the 12 tribes of Israel, referring to the, as a type of the, of the anti-type, the church, and the apostles are now taking the place of the 12 tribes and so forth. And so again, you don't have this idea of ruling at the end of the world. And Matthew 5, 5 says, The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, well that tends to think that makes it sound like the Christians are going to inherit the world at the end of the world, and therefore you can infer from that that they will be judging the world with Christ. But you can see that that evidence is not exactly right on point here about judging the world. Now, again, it depends on what does world mean. Now, Adam Clark takes world to refer to the Jewish people. Here's his quote. Nothing can be more evident than that the writers of the New Testament often use ha-cosmos, the world, to signify the Jewish people and the Jewish state. And in the former sense, it is often used by our Lord. Now, I'm, I'm relying on Clark. If he says that ha-cosmos, the world, refers to the Jewish people, I haven't actually studied that. But if he's right, then, then this verse here, the saints will judge the world, what it means is... The church is going to render justice to the Jews who persecuted them up until AD 70. And then, boom, Jesus comes using the Roman soldiers as his agent, destroys the old rabbinic order that persecuted the Christians, and then the saints will judge the world. The saints will execute judgment on the Jews 
by what happened in AD 70. That's Adam Clark's view. And so on, under Clark's view, the verse, this verse in 1 Corinthians 6 here, where Paul says that you're going to rule the saints with Christ, rule the world with Christ, or it says, actually it says the saints will judge the world. This verse, according to, this is what Adam Clark says about this verse, quote, I am fully of opinion that this cannot be the meaning of the words that the church will rule at the end of time, and that no such assessorship, and I think what he means in that old-fashioned English is that no such judge, judging as is contended forever will take place, and that the interpretation is clogged with a multitude of absurdities. So the common interpretation that we're going to judge the world at the end of time, according to Adam Clark, is, quote, clogged with a multitude of absurdities. Here's some of the absurdities that Clark alleges. It is never said in Scripture that Christians will judge with Christ. In fact, it is Christ who judges Christians. Now, Clark is right about this. This verse right here does not say that saints will judge the world with Christ. With Christ is not in there. It just says the saints will judge the world. Second absurdity that Clark alleges is, isn't Christ's decision to damn the wicked enough? Why does he need the saints to add their two cents worth? Jesus can do his judging all alone. Well, so then, what does the reverse refer to according to Adam Clark and Lightfoot, the famous Westminster theologian Lightfoot? Clark and Lightfoot say that this verse refers to the saints inheriting the kingdom of God as cited in Daniel. So when Paul says the saints will rule the world, he is referring to Daniel 7:18. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So judging the world means judging the kingdom, the kingdom of God, ruling the kingdom of God, and the saints are going to do that. Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones. A judgment given in favor of the saints of the Most High. Now, there's, I'm going to give you three translations of Daniel 7.22. The translation I just read was the Holman Christian Study Bible. Judgment given in favor of the Holy Ones. Let's look at the King James. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints. In other words, not judgment for the saints. They, God is the judge and he, and he and the saints or the litigants, if you will, the people asking for justice and God gives them justice, that doesn't make the Christians judges. That just makes them receivers of justice. But that in King James, it says judgment was given to the saints, which sounds like the saints received the ability to judge other people. The Young's literal translation of that verse says, until, until that the Ancient of Days hath, hath come and judgment is given to the saints of the Most High. The American Standard Version says the same thing. Judgment is given to the saints. In other words, the saints now have the right to be a judge, not to receive a good judgment in justice, but to give, but to exercise judgment because this judgment has been given to them. Daniel 7.27 says this, The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. So the kingdom is given to the people. Well, we know that the Christians are going to inherit a kingdom, and it could be that Paul is talking about Christians are going to rule this kingdom when he says, and the saints will judge the world. It doesn't sound like it in this particular translation. But I believe there's a lot of evidence that for Adam Clark and Lightfoot's position that it's referring to the saints inheriting the kingdom. And either way, it doesn't really make any difference because if the saints are going to judge the world at the end of time as executors of justice, or if they're going to rule the kingdom of God during this life, during this covenant time, well, either way, you ought to be able to handle drink box cases. So-and-so got a $10 claim against Brother A's got a $10 claim against Brother B. You ought to be able to handle that. Now, having established that the Christians will either judge the world or judge the church, 
Paul goes to verse 3 and he says this, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more are things that pertain to this life? Well, what does it mean to judge angels? Gill denies that it means ministers of the gospel. You shall judge your fellow ministers. Of course not. Know ye not that we shall judge angels mean good angels? Gill denies that, although I don't know why. That doesn't bother me too much to think that Paul might have meant that. I mean, after all, aren't Christians going to be in charge? If, 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 if indeed Christians are going to be in charge at the end of the world, are not angels part of God's creation? And wouldn't his church be in charge of angels? I don't have any problem with that, but Gill denies it. Or could it mean demons? Know ye not that we shall judge demons, bad angels? Now, John Gill says that's what it means. Adam Clark says that's what it means. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that's what it means. So I guess if my three major commentators say that's what it means, we'll have to go with that. And in fact, Adam Clark says that by angels, all confess that demons are intended. All of his fellow commentators back in his day said it's demons. We're going to judge demons. And Adam Clark says, certainly saints shall not judge angels. Okay, well, okay, so let's say it's demons. Know you not that you shall judge demons? When? Two options. At final judgment, at the last day. John Gill denies that, and Adam Clark denies that. The idea being that when God throws all the demons into the lake of fire, the saints will subscribe to and approve of that final condemnation, so they'll participate in the judgment. But Gill says, know that what it means to judge demons is when saints cast out demons out of people. For example, in John 12:31, Now is the judgment of this world. There's judgment. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And that was referring to the time of Jesus' ministry when they were casting out demons. Adam Clark says this, The apostle speaks of the ministers of the gospel, himself and others, who, by the preaching of the gospel through the power of Christ, should spoil the devils of their oracles and their idols, should deprive them of their worship, should drive them out of their seats, and strip them of their dominion. Well, by golly, if the Corinthian Christians can drive demons out of their temples, surely they'll be able to judge a lawsuit between each other. How much more things that pertain to this life? If you can judge that a demon's guilty, can't you judge between a brother and another brother on a small matter? 1 Corinthians 6, 4, Paul continues. So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? I think Paul is contrasting this life with the end of the world, if it's, if, assuming that he means judgment at the end of the world. In fact, that's a phrase actually tends to make you think that he's talking about judgment in, at the end of the world because he contrasts that with this life. But at any rate, if you have cases pertaining to this life, daily cases, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? Now, those that are selected that the Corinthians are accused of selecting, it could either mean they choose people in the church that have no business being judges, or it could mean that those who have no standing in the church are pagan magistrates. They might be legal judges, but they're not in the churches, so they have no standing in the church. So we have a split of opinion on that. The NIV says, are you going to appoint as judges even men of little account in the church? And so the NIV takes the position that it's talking about you're appointing people in the Corinthian church who aren't good at adjudicating disputes. That's what the Home of Christian Study Bible says. You have They have no standing in the church. It means you're appointing people in the church that aren't any good at being judges. Now, if this is correct, if the NIV and the Holman Christian Study Bible is correct, that the Corinthians are appointing people in the church that don't know what they're doing, then Paul is saying, look, even the least people in the church are capable of judging such small matters. They should be appointed to deal with the disputes, not these people who don't know what they're doing. Let me back up here a minute. I said the NIV agreed with the H. Holman Christian Study Bible. It's actually the NIV margin, the marginal translation, which reads like this. 
do you appoint as judges men of little account in the church? Okay. The other option is, do you select those who have no standing in the church would mean those who are outside the church, who are not in the church, who are pagans. And so then Paul is saying, look, you are going, you're selecting as your judges people who aren't even in the church, have no standing in the church. Well, whatever's meant here. Or, or it, another thing, it could mean that you are picking people in the church that aren't competent to judge the case, and so you feel like you can't get the case judged, so then you take it to a pagan magistrate, you're forced to go to the pagans. But whatever way it is, whether it's judges in the church that are no good forcing you to go to pagan magistrates, or whether you go directly to pagan magistrates, either way, the bottom line is, try your cases in the church, don't go to the pagan courts. We go to verses 5, 6, and 7, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul continues, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Instead, believer goes to court against believer, and that before unbelievers. Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? And, of course, what Paul is doing here, he's applying Jesus' Jesus's teaching on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Now, of course, that verse has been abused terribly. It means turn the other cheek if you're going to suffer some kind of injustice. It doesn't mean turn the other cheek when you have to defend somebody, like your family member or your friend or your church brother or something. Sometimes you have to stand up. But if it's just you're going to have to put up with a pecuniary loss or something or, or put up with an honor, a loss of honor, a loss of face, well, put up with it. Don't fight back as all you do is increase all, increase all the hatred and disunity and strife in the world. You know, I just, I lived for 23 years in China, and China is an honor society. I'm also a southerner, and the South is an honor society. And this, this is the true story. This is the honest goodness truth. I had somebody rob me of $300,000, and I had another case in China where a guy robbed me of 70 RMB, which is about what? Um... How many? How much is that? About ten dollars, let's say. I can't remember. I was more angry at the guy. I had more trouble forgiving the guy that robbed me of ten dollars than I had with the guy that robbed me of three hundred thousand dollars. Why? Because the guy that the shop owner who robbed me of the ten dollars was acting like I was wrong. Now the guy that robbed me of three hundred thousand dollars, there's no question he was wrong. He ended up going to jail for five years, so it wasn't a question. But this guy was standing on his soapbox and saying, you know, I don't owe you that money. And it took me three years to forgive that guy for a ten dollar cheat. Honor. No, it's better just to put up with it and let it go. I had trouble with that. And Jesus says, you know, turn the other cheek. He means turn the other cheek. In individual cases. I mean in the case of my ten dollars, if I lost that ten dollars, it's not gonna hurt anybody. It might have hurt my wife a little bit. But, you know, it didn't really hurt anybody, so I should have let it, just let it go. Paul says you go to a dispute against one another. It's already a moral failure because your disputes are done in, you are done in with your disputes. You're done in by those disputes by greed, retaliation, and hatred, as the NIV Study Bible says. And it's bad enough if you do that going before believers, but even more if the judges were unbelievers. I mentioned Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me quote him directly, Matthew 5:40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And again, that's talking about personal revenge. It's not talking about justice or defending somebody. Paul is not saying here that it's all right to accept injustice if, if to accept the injustice if if somebody else is going to be hurt by you accepting the injustice. Paul's not saying that. 
But if it's just you personally, just put up with it. We go to 1 Corinthians 6, 8. Instead, you act unjustly and cheat, and you do this to believers. So here, Paul says the Corinthians were doing more than just failing to adjudicate disputes. They were cheating one another, and that's something I've failed to listen and listen, list in my list of all the failings of the Corinthian church. I forgot about this one. They were suing one another, and they were cheating one another. Adam Clark says it could be that Paul was referring to that one case of the man living with his stepmother, his father's wife. I don't think so. I think they were actually cheating one another. Sharp business practices. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolater, adulterers, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now you think, oh my gosh, are the Corinthians doing all this? No, that's not what he meant, because if we drop down to verse 11, Paul says, and some of you used to be like this. That used to be means in the past before they got saved. And he also says some of you, not all of you. Okay, so he's not talking about that. But what he's saying is, look, Christians don't act like habitual sinners. They don't act like people in the world who are doing this kind of stuff. And cheating makes you unrighteous. And why would you want to do that? He says no thieves or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. It sounds like when they were cheating one another and, and taking each other to court, they were swindling one another. Maybe they were even verbally abusing each other as they, as they said, you owe me the money. No, I don't. Something bad was going on. But they weren't doing all of these things because it says some of you used to be this way. Now, this phrase sexually immoral, that refers to any kind of sexual immorality in general. The fact that he had a lot in this list about sexual immorality was probably because of the man sleeping with his stepmother. That's why he mentions in his list of sins here sexually immorality, he mentions adultery, and he mentions homosexuality. Here's an easy way to define sexual immorality. Any sexual activity done outside the bonds of heterosexual marriage. I remember one time I, I knew somebody, he was a brother, and he was married to the, a Christian wife, and he kept doing pornography. Unfortunately, it goes on a lot these days. And she decides she wants to divorce him. And I'm saying, now, wait a minute. Now, you can only divorce for adultery. That's not a grounds for divorce. And then a friend of mine pointed out that the Greek word pornea doesn't just mean adultery. It's translated that way often, but it means sexual immorality in general. In other words, you can divorce a spouse for addiction to pornography. You can divorce a spouse for bestiality, homosexuality on the side. You name it, bisexuality. That's pernea and sexual, except for the grounds of sexual immorality. It's all kinds of sexual immorality, not just adultery. Here's an easy way to define sexual morality. Sex between a man and a woman married to the man, and it's done privately. Sex between a man and the woman to whom the woman is married, done privately, not as a threesome or not with people watching. Now this phrase here, anyone practicing homosexuality, that is refers to male, male uh, homosexuality. Uh, the NIV translates it as nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. So it could refer to male prostitutes as homosexual offenders. And by the way, these so-called gay Christians who like to go around saying that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, what they'll say is, well, it refers to male prostitutes. No, it refers to anyone practicing homosexuality, as the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it. Anyone. Now, this is male, according to the Greek here, it's male homosexuality, but Paul also condemns female homosexuality in Romans 126. 
which says this, this is why God delivered them over to degrading passions, for even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Notice that Paul calls homosexuality degrading, not something that ought to be elevated into marriage like our idiotic Supreme Court has done, and like our stupid God-forsaken culture in America has done, and in the West, in post-Christian Western, in the post-Christian Western world. Now notice Paul links up homosexuality with thievery, greed, drunkenness, verbally abusive people, idolaters, adulterers, swindlers. It's not good company to be in. So we ought not to elevate homosexuality and just say, ah, oh, it's just normal. It's not normal. It's not the way God meant it. God created male and female. And of course, if somebody listens to this, they're probably going to accuse me of a hate crime, drag me before the court, say shut down my free speech. That's what we've come to in the West. But just the other day, just yesterday, I think I read... It was yesterday. Franklin Graham was going to do an evangelistic thing in England. And because Franklin Graham has pointed out the obvious that homosexuality is a sin against God, we cannot let free speech get in the way of hate. Or, excuse me, we cannot let free speech be used in order to practice hate. Therefore, we're going to shut him down. And they did not allow him to speak in, in England. And that's what it's coming to. You know, if homosexuals are so sure of themselves about what they're doing is righteous, why do they spend so much time trying to shut Christians down who are preaching against the practice? And not saying that homosexuals are unredeemable and that Jesus doesn't love them. Christians never say that, but it doesn't matter. Oh, you're a homophobe. You hate us. So we're going to shut you down. We're going to deprive you of your free speech rights. Well, that is one way to know that you ain't confident of what you're talking about. If you can't get into the arena and defend your practice and you just got to shut somebody down without listening to the opposing arguments, you are not only a fascist, you are not only narrow-minded, you're a bigot. I hate to be so frank, but that's the way it is. Now, I realize not all homosexuals are like that. Some homosexuals, are they're not going to shut down a restaurant, or they're not going to shut down a bakery that refuses to participate in things that sanction homosexuality. They are homosexuals like that. In fact, I think there are quite a few. But the militant homosexuals, the LGBT community, the ones that are politically active, they are fascist. They don't care about listening to the other side. All they care about is shutting us up using the government. And when you start shutting up people's free speech rights using the government, what are you? You're nothing but a two-bit fascist. 1 Corinthians 6.11, and we'll finish this one up. And some of you used to be like this, Nova. Some of you used to be adulterers and swindlers and verbal abusers and homosexuals and all that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, washed could either mean washed by baptism or washed by the blood of Jesus. Either way, it doesn't matter. You were sanctified and you were justified. Now, usually we think of justification coming first. You're declared legally righteous in heaven, and then you're sanctified as you, as you progressively live out your Christian life as God gradually transforms you from image to image, from glory to glory, until you are completely transformed to the image of Christ at your glorification when you die. But in this case, Paul lists sanctification first. And because of that, some people say, in fact, well, Jameson Fawcett Brown, for example, says that the word order shows that this is talking about definitional sanctification, positional sanctification, the sanctification that you get when you're saved. Like the thief on the cross, he was sanctified as soon as he got saved. He didn't have a lot of time for progressive sanctification. The sanctification with which it is impossible to see God, as Paul says in Hebrews, don't have the verse, I have to go from memory, I think it's Hebrews 12, somewhere in there, the sanctification without which it is impossible to see God. That means if you're seeing God, you've been justified, but you also are sanctified because it's impossible to see God without being sanctified. So the theologians call that definitional sanctification or positional sanctification. And so Paul says you were washed, 
you were baptized or you were washed in the blood by justification. You were sanctified at the point when you were saved and you were justified. That means declared righteous. And now notice what Paul is doing here. He's not saying, hey, don't be an adulterer. Don't be a, a verbal abuser. Don't be a drunkard. Don't be a reveler. He's appealing to who they are because he knows if they understand who they are, they're going to, they're going to act, they're going to normally, without trouble, they're going to do what their nature compels them to do. It's just like a lion is going to eat meat. He's going to eat meat. That's because what he does. And people that are washed, sanctified, and justified are naturally going to do righteous things and are not going to do all these bad things like homosexuality, adultery, idolaters, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, and so forth. So that's the way to appeal to sinning Christians, is you appeal to who they are in Christ, their nature. They are saints. They are not sinners by nature. They are a new man, born again by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ has created a new creation, and that new creation wants to walk in newness of life and does not want to go out and do these nasty things. So Paul, notice that Paul calls them sanctified, despite their obvious gross sin. I mean, he just finished calling them cheaters, but they're still sanctified. So... That's why people say that Paul is referring to here positional, definitional sanctification that happens at justification, not progressive sanctification, what happens through the course of a Christian's life. Because look what they were doing, not judging people asleep with their mother-in-law, dividing up into factions, being proud about their oratorical abilities, being abusing the spiritual gifts, on and on and on and on they were doing. They had bad doctrine about the resurrection of the dead. They were suing each other in... Christian courts, they weren't showing a lot of progressive sanctification, but by golly, they were sanctified, positionally, definitionally. One last point before we shut it down here. Notice that all this washing and sanctification and justification of the Corinthians came in the name of, or in the authority of, the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in half a verse. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, there's the second person, and by the Spirit, the third person of our God, the first person. And with that happy note, we will shut this audio down. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you stay tuned for the next audio. In the next audio, we will cover 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through the end of the chapter, and we will discuss Paul's admonition for the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality, which I'm sure the Corinthians had plenty of. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this one.